Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. What a ride we've been on for the last eight weeks from Nick Hornby revealing he had a cat named after Liam Brady in episode one to Fiona Shaw revealing the unlikely comparison between holding your serve in tennis and holding your audience on stage to last week when Kit Duvall swooped in, stole our hearts and stole top spot in the race to become second captain's greatest non-sports person sports person for 2022. And as we round out another summer series of Second Captain Saturday, we're going to go out in style. Oh, my David here with Kieran Murphy. Hey, Murph. Hey, on. How's it going? We're crowning a new champ today, Kieran. But what is your yes. what's your standout moment of the series? Ooh, um, if you're putting me on the spot on, and it really sounds like you are, well, absolutely, I'd probably say William Finnegan riding the biggest wave of his life, cheating death. Describing the entire incident in gripping, chilling detail and then only getting 76 points for his double. <laughs> That's probably my highlight. What on earth was yeah, I thinking? Yeah, it was the Nick Hornby intimidation uh, that got to you. We've, we've... I was trying to prove that I was the big man. Uh, oh, no, I, I, I don't think I proved anything other than that I was a silly, strange little man. <laughs> That's all I proved that day. Yeah, I'm glad you finally worked that one out. Listen, over the years on this show, we've gone to some areas of the arts that might be considered a touch inaccessible only for our brilliant guests to open our eyes through their passion and their love of what they do. I'm thinking of the artist Dorothy Cross or Dieran Negrifa convincing us of the joys of poetry. Well, today feels like one of those shows as we take a journey into the world of avant-garde experimental classical music. I've got to say, Murph, not somewhere we go every day. But I'm confident. Well, speak for yourself. My uh, my Spotify most played list at the end of every year is chock full, full of it. Yeah, I'm confident when you hear our amazing guest speak, you'll agree it's a journey well worth taking. Jennifer Walsh is a world-renowned composer and vocalist who's been described as one of the most exciting musicians of her generation. In 2016, she won the Innovation Award at the British Composer Awards for her lifelong dedication to questioning and challenging the status quo through music and performance. In 2019, her work XXX Live Nude Girls was chosen by The Guardian as one of the, wait for this, one of the 25 best works of classical music of the 21st century. Last year, she was appointed Professor of Composition at Oxford University, the first Irish person to be appointed to that prestigious role. And if you, like me, are struck by the strange juxtaposition of the words Oxford University and XXX Live Nude Girls in this intro, well, then you're starting to understand the breadth and diversity of the work that Jennifer produces. She's going to be great, and she is on the way today. But can we spare a thought, please, for Kit Duvall? She's got an hour of hell to go through to find out if she's going to walk away as series champ. Murph, can you please give us a rundown of that leaderboard? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. This is never a part of the job that I find easy on, but it's weighing particularly heavily on my shoulders today. As you've already said, it's the final show of the season, which means that a new non-sports person, sports person of the year will be crowned this very day. To win ultimate glory, Jennifer Walsh will have to provide me with her all-time sporting highlight, and then I will assign her a sports person that I feel most closely resembles her and her sporting achievements before she is assigned by me a score out of 100. She is the only person standing between last week's guest, Kit Duval and decisive victory 
who of course scored 86 points for her school day's javelin victory inspired by casual, heartless racism. An unbelievable moment on last week's show. What a story that was. So, how does the table look in full then, I hear you ask? Bottom of the pile this year is Anne Enright, who got 72 points for, well, swimming with a seal. Next comes Breen Gleeson on 74 for losing all but one game in his under-12 soccer season. With William Finnegan on 76 for cheating death on the high seas and Mick Lynch solidly mid-table on 77 points for blowing a 2 all draw in the last minute of the only cup final he ever played in. Yeah. Three people have topped the leaderboard this season. Nick Hornby scored the greatest goal in five-a-side history and bullied his way to 83 points in the first show of the season. Fiona Shaw and her outrageous tennis stylings briefly looked like a series winner with 85 points. Thought she had it. But now it comes down to this. One hour of relentless questioning to get to the truth. Jennifer Walsh is the final competitor to step into the arena this season and she'll be doing just that after we play you a little something from Yeah Yeah Yeahs on Second Captain Saturday. Breakup song, everybody, but we're not there yet because our final guest of the series on Second Captain Saturday is the Professor of Composition at Oxford University, no less. She's an award-winning vocalist and composer whose works have been performed all over the world. Just this summer, she performed her orchestral work, The Sight of an Investigation, at the BBC Proms with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, a performance one reviewer called Lyrical Surreal. And deeply poignant. Not quite as surreal as coming on national radio today to have her sporting life examined, you would have to say. <laughs> Jennifer Walsh, thanks for chatting to us. Thanks very much for having me. I never in all my life thought I'd be talking about my sporting life. So <laughs> this is a very interesting uh, proposition. Don't worry, it's just for the first like 40 minutes. And then we'll talk about music <laughs> at the end. So it's fine. Don't no worry. And, you're, and we should say it's a, very, it's a very special spot. You're the last guest of the series. So are, are you confident of your chances of taking top spot on the leaderboard here, Jennifer? Um, I feel like, you know, the last lad to take the penalty in the shootout <laughs> yeah. and just bricking it, really. <laughs> Well, there is some, uh, we've heard a couple of stories now, martial arts related, so we'll get to those a little bit later on. But can you take us back to your interests, your big interests when you were a kid? We've a lot of guests actually this series who have gotten into the arts and acting and the likes, having grown up in a creative sort of household. Was that the same for you? I was very lucky in that my parents both interested in the arts. Um, They're both from working class backgrounds, but they both really really dedicated to it so my mother is a writer like that's what you know that's what she was always doing in the house and my father you know was an apprentice at Guinness and then he took early retirement and he went to the National College of Art and Design so he's a potter now so I was sort of used to the fact that like people 
you know, people were just making stuff in the house. And that's as good a model as any. It's just the idea that it's not exotic, actually. It's just sort of normal. It's what people do, you know, in the evenings and what they enjoy doing. What kind of writing was your mum doing? Uh, my mother did plays and novels. So, um, you know, she had play staged in Andrews Lane Theatre and places like that in the UK and some uh, novel and book short stories published. So she was always, I, I mean, writing, I would regularly wake up to the sound of like a dot matrix printer um, <laughs> grinding back and forth at like 7 a.m. when she pulled an all nighter. So that was the other thing is I sort of had this sense um, I didn't go up. I I don't think I could say I grew up with a completely normal family schedule, you know, mm. and that I, I people would go off and pull all nighters or go off and get lost in a project and things like that. So I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky with my upbringing. Uh, what kind of music was being played in the house when you were growing up? Well, all sorts. My dad was a massive jazz. Well, he still is a massive jazz fan. So Bill Evans, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, things like that. So lots of jazz. And um, my father was also, you know, he was in a rock band back in the 60s, like uh, one of the many rock bands that were going around Dublin. And so he was also playing rock music as well. You what, know, what kind of stuff? Rock is very broad. Uh, I, mean, I mean, are we rock- talking about like kind of like a Beatles light? Oh, yeah. Beatles. Yeah, Mm. very much the Beatles. So, you know, and he he could play the guitar. So he taught me to play the guitar when I was a kid and I learned to play Beatles songs and things like that. I suppose it was music he'd come to because when he was in Guinness, they had a record club for all the apprentices. And so after a certain amount of weeks, you know, you saved up your little tokens from your pay check well your pay packet it would have been in those days and then you got a record so he he had a lot of he would tell stories about what it felt like to go into a record shop and hear a record for the first time and go I want to buy that and rush up and be told that's John Coltrane or that's Bill Evans and be really excited to go home which is an experience we don't have anymore that's not necessarily a bad thing but 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 that idea of like that listening to something and being so blown away you had to have it and you had to ask what it was. Did you find yourself, or when you look back now, did you interact with music in quite a serious way, even back in those years, or was it just a bit of fun? Well, it was, I really enjoyed it. I I suppose, and this is whether it's for music or sports, I think, you know, it's, it's where it becomes competitive or where it becomes sort of institutionalized versus where it's just fun and people enjoying it. You know, so when I was a kid, you know, I was, I was doing lots of, you know, I was playing around with instruments. I had a guitar. We had a piano at home. I had uh, for my first Holy Communion, I uh, um, bought a tape recorder. And so I used to make, you know, radio shows on my tape recorder and stuff like that. And I was devastated because I started when I started at my um, at the convent school at Our Lady's Grove in Dublin. Then the, the nun said to me when I was like eight and a half, she said to me, oh, you'll be taking recorder. And I thought she meant we'd be making like tape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was really disappointed when we went to the cupboard and she had to. The nun was trying to have to play like or press play and record simultaneously on the radio with a, with a song. Exactly, that you like. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, oh, this is going to be really amazing, you know, and, and then maybe they'll have like two tape recorders <laughs> uh, so so it was and I think that's the thing is it's how you keep that openness that people are enthusiastic and wanting to play around you know the structure in Ireland at the time was oh, okay you do your grades you, you know you do your Royal Irish Academy grades so um, I ended up doing those and then it's a little bit more serious because you know you have to practice your scales and you have to learn exam pieces but I also had great crack because Jimmy Kavanagh who was the trumpet teacher I learned the trumpet in the Royal Irish Academy he also he also um, is a conductor a really fine conductor and so he was conducting 
you know, the kids orchestra and we toured around and, you know, tortured people in Galway and Cork <laughs> with our, you know, 15 year old kid renditions of orchestral music. But that made it really, really fun. And, and you just wanted to be part of that community. Why the trumpet, Jennifer? Well, it's the best instrument of all, Owen. It's, Go on then, <laughs> tell us why. It, I mean, still to me, the sound of it is amazing. Um, it also cuts across everything else. You, you know, if you have a trumpet in the mix, you can always hear it. Um, there's something in that sound that when I was a kid, I heard it and I totally loved. Uh, my mother claims it's because I was watching Jamie and his magic torch and there's a character called E. Bullion Bundy who plays the trumpet in it. So oh, in that maybe, cartoon, yeah. Yeah, that cartoon. But it it's still, still when I hear, you know, fantastic trumpet players, um, like, you know, whether it's Miles Davis or um, Jamie Branch passed away recently. I was listening to a lot of her music over the last couple of weeks and you're like, it's just such a great sound. It's just such an amazing, beautiful, bright, you know, golden sound. You mentioned your, your upbringing in Ireland, but you travelled around a bit, I understand, as well. You did some of your growing up abroad? Well, yeah, my, my father worked for IBM, so um, you were commonly sent on assignments. So we lived in Holland for a couple of years, and then we lived in San Francisco for six months, which was, you know, it was great. It was completely brilliant to go from, you know, a single-sex uniformed religious ethos school to a non-religious ethos non-uniformed mixed gender school with kids from all over the world so it was it was it was really interesting for me and and I suppose it uh it sort of left me with a lasting interest in looking into identity and what identity is because I would go over to Holland where I was considered completely a paddy you know, you know could not be defined any other way and then I'd come back to Ireland and I'd be bullied a wee bit because my accent wasn't quite what it should have been because I just spent a couple of years in Holland so so even as a kid I I was very aware of the fact that you know things were performed identities were performed slang and how you even decide whether somebody will take the last slice of cake is a performance that happens in different ways in Dublin and Amsterdam <laughs> Oh, well, oh, no, I wouldn't have it. You have it. You go on. You have that last <laughs> piece. Not for me. That idea as well, that maybe you you discovered it at that age, that identity is malleable as well, that you can go to a school in Holland and you can just decide to be a different person to the person you were in with the nuns in, in Dublin. You know, anybody who goes anywhere new knows there's this opportunity. Even if you have a, a kid in, in, you know, uh, a kid in Longford who's 12 years old, who's just praying to go to secondary school, you know what I mean? So that there's a chance for this, this sort of break and a shift in, in how they, they move through the world. And I think there has to be those rooms for shifts and for change and to be malleable. Otherwise, we're all just stuck, you know, with, with whatever we were, sh- we, whatever shoebox we were put in when we were kids. You said earlier that there there's a moment when, not necessarily a moment, but music is obviously fun and then can become something more serious for kids and people can go by the wayside. I've heard you say before, particularly with the kind of stuff that you ended up doing, this experimental sort of music, that the love of that can be beaten out of kids, that the fo- they're made fun of for this sort of thing. Why Why does that happen, do you think? And why did that not happen to you? How do you keep the love? Well, I think it happens because sometimes it happens because you have teachers who are incredibly stressed out and there's not enough funding for the arts and there's not enough funding for music. And, you know, they're basically told, teach, teach the kids this recorder piece. You, you know, that's that's our music provision or something like that. Sometimes it happens because 
um, people don't have a wide range of interests artistically. They're not excited about it. Um, and, and so it's difficult for them to see maybe a kid comes in and I, I, how can I put it this way? I think any teacher, if they're teaching music, should be able to meet the kids on their own level. So if a kid comes in and says, I have a death metal band, you know, the teacher should say, OK, great. I don't know anything about death metal. Tell me five albums to listen to, you know, right. and like, let's try and figure this out. And the same thing if a kid comes in and says, I really love playing the cello and I want to, you know, learn my Bach cello suite. So it there should be that openness. But unfortunately, often institutions aren't funded or the way people are educated, they don't feel confident doing that. Or how do you create a curriculum that allows the kid who's interested in death metal to be to be assessed alongside the kid that's interested in playing a trad or something like that. So, I mean, I'm lucky in that I sort of, I teach at university level. So that's what I do all day is I, I'm just, what are you interested in? That's weird that I get to learn about now because <laughs> you're interested in it. That's, that's just sort of who I am. And to answer your other question, I would just say I'm pig headed and stubborn. Like, and so I'm a little Joe Pesci in Goodfellas <laughs> inside me. And so I was lucky enough to just, pig head my way through it and that's not to say it was easy there were times it was really difficult and I felt you know there were times people made fun of what I did there was times people slated it um and I just somehow kept going and not everybody does I know people who are incredibly fine musicians and artists who somehow it's just beaten them down and they haven't been able to keep going by by people do you mean in your case teachers peers in your in the music world professional artists you know everybody like it's I thought it was phenomenal yesterday when the government announced these 2000 uh universal basic income you know grants they're given to artists and you know you see people all over social media saying I've scraped by for years I've scraped by and finally you know there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel and you think that's 2000 people feeling like that in Ireland out of I think 8000 people applied you know, so there's another 6,000 people going, oh, man, you know, that was my last hope or that was, you know, that would have helped me get through something. So I think it's a difficult life to be an artist. I'm really, really lucky to have the position that I do, you know, and, I, and I'm and i aware of that. I've seen you say before that there is a sort of obsession in classical music with the idea of the virtuoso, this one genius who makes everything happen. And to be honest, that would kind of be my impression of how classical music gets written. Is that not or should that not be the case? Well, I, I think that I respect craft and I respect people who are authentic and dedicated, but that doesn't necessarily have to mean they do everything perfectly, mm. you know? So, I mean, if you listen to, um, I mean, I know I do not agree with Morrissey's politics now, but the music of the Smiths was very important to me when I was a teenager. He does not sing in tune, you know? And so if you play that, mm. I remember playing it and it's music that was deeply meaningful to me and you play it, to some of my classical friends and they all just go, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible, you know, singing out of tune. And I'm thinking, can't you listen past that? You know, can't you see what's there to get? Um, I always say to my students, Marcel Proust said that only unimaginative men love beautiful women. And I think that if we can't sort of, if we can't just try to see past something having to be perfect, you know, so I think, I think in any, and I think also it's just that's often used as a gatekeeping device to keep certain people out. Do do you know what I mean? Or to keep certain styles of interpretation out. So it can be used in jazz. It can be used in trad as well. Um, But I, I sort of think we should be open. Of course, you know, I will completely 
be blown away by something that's absolutely perfectly done and, you know, executed in the way that we would call virtuosic. But but I also think like the most virtuosic musical performer for me ever is Prince. You know, and when I see Prince play the guitar and particularly um, Prince doing guitar solo during uh, the sort of traveling Wilburys, Tom Petty, um, while my guitar gently sweet, uh, sleeps. Oh, that's the, the George Harrison uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. It? It's the most unbelievable thing I've ever it seen It is in my the life. most unbelievable. unbelievable. And, and I'm yeah. like, this is this is stunning and everything you know and he throws the guitar up in the end and just like up in the air in the end just walks away and I'm like that for me is the highest peak of virtuosity that exists it's sorry Ishtak Perlman and all these other classical mm. musicians I'm supposed to say but for me that just the energy what he knows he's doing the mess like there's so many different levels you can interpret it on and it's stunning but I suppose the, the point about this kind of the virtuosity though is that I've seen you talk about collaboration, about how it, there's no such thing as a virtuoso because that person always depends on his or her collaborators. Yeah. Um, which I find like really interesting, right? Because I was watching Get Back, the Peter Jackson documentary about the Beatles, of course. Right? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely yeah. unbelievable. And whatever it was, the 100 second or two minute clip that went around the world, mega viral of Paul McCartney playing and playing. And then all of a sudden you hear Get Back. And I was just kind of curious to hear you talk about, well, yes, that's the genius of Paul McCartney there, but Get Back doesn't happen without the other three guys. No, no. Uh, But my point would still be that you still need the virtuoso to come up with Get Back. You know, the collaborator helps the the genius or whatever, but it's still the genius of Paul McCartney that creates the song. So I I, I was just kind of wondering what your uh, line on that was. I mean, I, I, t- we, that's all we did at Christmas was watch Get Back, yeah. listen to every single Beatles album in order, play all the songs on the guitar. Um, that was our Christmas and what a wonderful Christmas it was. Um, I, what I thought was amazing about Get Back was how boring it was mm. because um, you see all this faffing around, you see the endless cigarette breaks, the lunch, messing, whole bits where him and John Lennon are just like joking around. And then you just see, oh, there's this moment, which at the time they didn't even know was a special moment. It was just him noodling and he finds something. And then they try to make it into something and it turns into something else. And to me, I I don't think of that as a moment of genius. I think, oh, isn't this great? We can trace this song. Like, great back, Get Back is a great song, but it's also, we also think it's a great song because we've heard it so many times. You know, and the more you hear a pure piece of music, the more familiar it becomes and the better that you think it is. And so what was interesting was watching it. I was watching it with somebody who didn't know the song Get Back. Wow. And so during that clip, I was like, oh, oh, it's, oh my God. And they were like, what? What's going on? You know, and you realize like part of why we think it's meaningful is because we're retrofitting mm. it. We're, we're, we're sort of making this archaeology of it. And um. I do. I loved the whole series and I'm waiting for when they release the entire tapes. Yeah. Because that was like, you know. And we just, we haven't heard half enough of the, the Beatles sitting around the studio playing music and telling jokes to each exactly. other. Exactly. Yeah. But, but that whole process, it, like, because here's the other thing is, I can't remember because I'm very bad with names. What was the name of the keyboardist who came in? The American oh, keyboardist who came in? Billy Preston. Yeah. And then he's, if he hadn't come in, the whole thing would have fallen apart. 
And you see, it doesn't matter. Like it is about people and collaboration and the sort of the ecology of people in a studio, that sort of weird little ecosystem and how they collaborate. Because what the whole thing was about to disintegrate. He came in, he basically fixed it by being this extra presence, you know, and you barely see him in the footage on the concert on the roof. But he was sort of holding them all together at that point, like emotionally and musically. Mm. So that's that's I that's what people are here for. We're here to collaborate as musicians. I know some people just want to work by themselves and that's okay. But a deep, deep joy for me is being in a studio, working with other people, being in a rehearsal room, working things out, finding things that you might not have stumbled on on your own. Jennifer, I think we can already tell at this point of the chat that you talk about your work and your passion in a very accessible way. And I probably shouldn't be surprised by that, but there is a feeling that we sometimes have that uh, parts of the arts and, you know, you would think maybe classical music would be amongst that are inaccessible. You use the word gatekeeping earlier, that there is a bit of gatekeeping going on that, and that, you know, you have to be at a certain level of whatever it is to understand all this stuff. Is that absolutely not the case? Are you passionate about letting people in on what it is that you do and why you think it's so important? Of course. And I'm always happy, you know, like I'm happy to answer any question or to talk to people, you know, about what I do. What I also think is there's a lot of really difficult works of art that I've had to work to get to. So I remember reading, doing a close reading of Ulysses with with a friend of mine, you know, some years ago and you know, I had all these companion books to Ulysses, you know, and I was reading them at the same time when we were reading Ulysses really slowly. And we would sort of, go, ah, I read my 10 pages yesterday. You know, you read your 10 pages and you understand you're not going to read Ulysses before you go to sleep at night, you know, but there's really, really amazing, something to be gained from saying, I'm going to do this thing that's difficult. So I, I think that there's art that you turn to when you need comfort. There's art that you turn to when you want to be distracted. There's art that you turn to when you want to get pepped up because you're going out or somebody broke up with you and you need to cry and feel you're not alone. And there's also art that you turn to where you go, this is going to be more of a hardcore engagement. I have to be really present and I have to work at it, but it's going to be worth it at the end of it. Now, that said, I think that, you know, close listening to Kendrick Lamar is probably in a way more difficult than letting a Beethoven symphony wash over you, you know, in terms of just trying to catch things. So the act of what attention is, is something we should be thinking about, you know, because I think often we like to think that art is something which will transport us, which also sometimes means will allow us not to have to pay attention or it'll do so much of the work of holding our attention that we don't have to worry about paying attention. Yeah. And I think music is by miles the genre that we ask the most of in that area. Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, if you're reading a book, you're reading a book and you're I think maybe more willing to say, okay, the book will affect me emotionally, but I'm just going to let that happen. Whereas with music, I know tons of people that listen to music only by mood. So if she's yeah. going out, yeah. she listens to a certain type of music. If she's uh, on a Sunday morning having coffee, she listens to a certain type of music and that, and that's it. Like it, she picks the art to fit her mood, not the other way around sometimes, you know? Totally. I ask my students always every year, I say to them, I want you to write down every type of music you listen to, but also write down where you listen to it, what streaming platforms, do you ever purchase music, you know, which is often increasingly not the case. 
Um, like, so, and I remember I had a student who he was able to lay it all out and he was saying, when I do my part-time job, I'm driving a van and I listen to this radio station because it just plays 80s music. And then when I get home, you know, I'm streaming stuff from my phone and I listen to it through my Bluetooth speaker and I put on this. And then when I'm trying to go to sleep, I listen to ASMR or I listen to lo-fi, you know, to, to sort of help calm me down. And so people are using music to regulate mood. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of all the time bringing themselves up or down different times of the day. And part of that is often people are in noisy environments. Maybe, you know, they're having to try to block out things on the tube or they're, you know, they have loud flatmates. So they're sort of using it all the time. But a lot of the time they're not paying close attention. It's just there to block something else out or to sort of sustain a mood, you know. And I do that as well. We all do it. Painters often paint very specifically to certain music that they listen to. Um, but we don't do that with... I mean, maybe we do. Maybe maybe a lot of people, maybe younger people do. Maybe if you're 14, 15, you're putting on different YouTube. You know, like I was watching Review Bra, which was one of the most... It's a, it's a guy, B-R-A-H. Oh, not, right, okay, yeah, yeah. Yes, not the underwear. Um, But, you know, at least there's just this very... It, somebody described it as haunted, haunted public access vibes. <laughs> it's just a guy in a suit, and he's giving you this very slow, calm review of a Papa John's pizza box. Mm. And, and, you're, and I'm thinking, this is really calming. Somebody sent me a link to... A, I think it's a Limerick sculptor, an Irish guy, who made a... A diorama of the Mel Gibson drunk arrest. Yeah. And he's just gently narrating how he made this. And you think. Me, Oliver making a sandwich, making a ham sandwich. Exactly. Yeah, that yeah. is that is golden. Like you just put that on the background and it just feels like it feels like somebody's doing the dishes while you're drying. It, it has that sort of calm feel to it. So I think I think sound broadly, we do that all the time now. We, we like use it in different contexts. Well, you're listening to the calming sounds of Jennifer Walsh, the world-renowned <laughs> composer and musician. We're about to enter our final part of this series of Second Captains. You're the final guest to challenge for our title. Find out who will be our greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2022, right after this. Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Our guest this week on Second Captain Saturday is the composer Jennifer Walsh. We're loving our chat so far, but anything that's happened up to now means nothing, nothing, because we're yet to talk sport. That's coming down the tracks very shortly. And as I mentioned earlier, you're the professor of composition at Oxford University. You're the first Irish person to be appointed to that prestigious role. Now, we would have a certain image of Oxford, I'm sure, in our minds as a, a, how would I say, a very traditional conservative seat of learning. How does that square with your, I presume, experimental approach to teaching? Well, it seems that they hired me for exactly that, <laughs> which is uh, very lucky. Um, yeah, they're getting what they're paid they're for. They're getting what they're paid yeah. for. It, it does yeah. what it says on the tin um, <laughs> sort of a thing. So I, I'm lucky in that the teaching at Oxford, it's, I mean, if you teach in any arts context, you're doing a lot of one-to-one, a lot of sort of trying to figure out what the student wants to do and help them do it better. I like also to add group. I love group, small group work um, and where the students can all help one another out and try ideas out together. And I'm able to do that there, you know, and try different things out. And I have to say as well, you know, the the faculty have have started a lot of very progressive courses where they're really trying to view music, not as something that's just isolated that you analyze the 
chords that are contained within it, but um, also that it's something that exists in a society and that that society has values and biases and systems of privilege and, you know, a huge range of different music. So um, I, I had to do grading this year and I was grading like I was grading a huge amount of incredibly long essays about uh, prog rock. Do you know? And I, it was either that or I had to do Brazilian music or global hip hop, you know, so there's all of that alongside the classical music. So that's what makes it that's what makes it attractive for me to work there is that is that they're they're sort of really trying to view music as something that's multidimensional rather than rather than just um you know, of course, you can take classes where you'll do very precise analysis of all the, um, you know, of all the harmonic content, but also going beyond that. Is there a tension, you think, between the art of uh, pursuing a, a singular vision, in your case, avant-garde classical music, and the art of teaching, which is in many ways the most selfless act, you know, in society? That Like, here are the fruits of my experience, learn from them, take them into your own career. Is there a tension there, do you think? Well, I I sort of, while on the one hand, I would think, okay, here's my experience. So I do have a lot of experience. So I can say to the students things like, the trumpet player is going to murder you if you write that. You, you know, that's that's just not going to happen. Or if you do this, it just won't work. You won't be able to hear it or, you, you know, because this is overlapping with that. Yeah. But I I also think like the job is just to listen to the student and to see what they want to do. Some of the students are really clear about what they want to do, and um, but some of the students they might not even think that they're allowed to do what they want to do, and you're just trying to help them construct the technique that they need. So it's not a one size fits all. It's sort of think you know if I can use my terrible metaphor from earlier, um, you know the kid with the death metal, their the way that their sound will be mixed and mastered and engineered and recorded and played back, you know, is completely different to the kid who maybe wants to write a string quartet. So you're you're really trying to go in there and think, um, you know, what do they need that's specific to the project that they want to do? But that's what keeps it fresh and interesting and allows it maybe to be easily selfless in that, you know, um, you get to learn things about music you didn't know about. And somebody comes in and they say, oh, I've heard of this K-pop genre called trot and I want to write a, you know, I want to write a paper about it. And you're like, fantastic. You know, let's let's <laughs> make me a playlist. So that's that's what makes it interesting. You have brought sports into your work. It's time to start building up some points here, Jennifer. Okay. Is exercise a part of your regimen? Is, <laughs> is it important to your work? Well, I... So I love trying loads of different physical disciplines out, trying Pilates or yoga or Tai Chi. And, uh, you know, I I also love as I, you know, before the lockdowns in London, I used to take uh, dance classes at Pineapple Dance Studios and I would just be the worst person in the room at hip hop or jazz dance <laughs> or whacking and and all these different dance disciplines. And I just really love it because it's a way of being in your body, you, you know, that you don't get taught in school because in school it's more about who can run really fast. Okay, great. You're good at sports. Whereas, yeah. you know, if you don't allow people to just be in their body and get some pleasure from that, you know, most of us feel pretty bad about our bodies or we're worried about our bodies. And it's really a shame if sports only means you're a person who can run really fast or hit a ball really precisely. And so you don't get access to that nice feeling of being in your body. And how did you figure that out during lockdown when you were kind of denied the chance to go to all these classes? 
Well, I did the running that everybody else did, but I hate running. It's it's just boring and wretched and it hurts my feet. Uh, so I just went really, really hard on YouTube deep dives of the worst workout videos I could find. <laughs> so I did the share hot body dance workout. Yep. I did jazzercise. <laughs> I did lots Jane of Fonda. Joe Wicks. Jane Fonda, yep, at the New York City Ballet Workout DVD. Um, I just did, because I just thought this will just be kitchen hilarious and it'll keep me going. If if I do one good thing in my life, it will be to introduce the world, more more people to the Ange- Angela Lansbury workout video, which I, <laughs> I, I don't know if I should say more, if you should just stop listening to the podcast and just go Google Angela Lansbury workout video. Listen, I'm as big a fan of Murder, She Wrote as the next person, but I, I just don't think encouraging yeah, yeah. people to stop listening to a radio show is going to get you big points is all I'm saying yeah murder she wrote in a in a sort of a peach a peach overalls in her home doing light calisthenics and taking sensual baths and talking you through the the process but 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 I think that's it is it's like everybody has to find their way and has to find what they enjoy you you know like I love swimming I really really love swimming which makes me such a cliche as an Irish person now to to love the wild swimming but (laughs) But uh, but I love it and it makes me calm when I do it. You know, I afterwards I feel really tired and I don't feel like talking, which is for an Irish person is a sign of true Zen peace. And, you know, so so it's sort of finding finding your way to those things. So with my students, I say to them, try as many different things as you can until there's stuff that you actually enjoy or you're just interested in. And it's not necessarily going to be yoga. You might decide you hate yoga but you really love doing Pilates or something like that. So, but just try things out. Yeah, that's so well explained, Jennifer. I really just the idea that you don't actually have to be brilliant at something to enjoy it at anything really. And and sport would be one of those things. What about when you were, when you were a kid, were you any good at sport then? Were you a sporty kind of child? Well, I wasn't in the normal school sense in that, you know, I, there was a terrible incident where I was hit in the face with a rounders bat, uh, which was about the most connection that I made with the sport of rounders. Um, And, you know, I couldn't run that fast. Um, What I did do, which I did really tremendously enjoy, was I did judo classes and, um, and I did them in this sort of weird room around the back of a church down an alley, you know, somewhere between Black Rock and Dunleary. And and I really loved that. And I did that. I, I did that to you, you. I did that till when I was 15 and I was a brown belt, which is the highest belt you can be when you're 15. Okay. Yeah. So I was. OK, well, the, hang on. That's it. There's a hidden talent of ever. This is the whole point of wow. this show. That's that's a brown belt judo practitioner. Yeah. No. And I fought in like we had this amazing guy and I, I tried to see if I could find him, but I couldn't. The guy who taught us all was called Jerry. And he had a mini and he would put four kids in the back and two in the passenger seat. And, you know, this was the 80s. Um, and he no, would, we were all in those sort of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we would drive to tournaments and fight, fight like mm. f- like fight in tournaments and, and stuff like that. So I remember coming second. I don't remember what the tournament was. But for me, I, I felt that coming second was an was an un like you couldn't possibly hope to come second. Your best hope was that you came third. So like coming second <laughs> seemed above and beyond what was possible. But but I really loved that. But that that also was I don't even know how it happened. I think I just sort of saw it and begged my mother to let us do judo. I'm not really sure where that impulse came from. And I really, really enjoyed it. I actually do it with my nephew because my nephew loves to wrestle quite aggressively. He's he's 10 
And I said to him, you can't do this with everybody because not everybody can... Mm. You wants to play like this, and I not everyone is a brown belt in in judo. Well, what, what I make him do is, is I make him do the bow that you would do at the beginning mm. of judo to show him this is the beginning and the end of the very physically intensive, <laughs> you know, play period. And I find myself trying to do throws to him, <laughs> you know, because it's still there. But but Just was, you still got to dominate the dojo, you know, no, the, yeah, exactly, regardless you know, of who you're up against. Yeah. I know, but but there is a structure to it, and you feel like, and it was a community, like we had a lot a crack you, you know you did the tournaments if you wanted or you didn't and you didn't expect to win and it was just more about you all got to go to Lusk in the car with Jerry and you know <laughs> five kids or something like that so brilliant <laughs> nicely explained I gotta say that there are Jerry's up and down the country who are the lifeblood of, of Irish sport yes. and probably around the world as well and, and given their own time and all that sort of stuff so tell us is that your is that your sporting highlight then, your second place? Or do you have something else you want to throw into the mix before? Well, we um, I was wondering if you would allow... Um, we allow anything, whatever the next words out of your mouth are. Okay, so... There's l- literally no limit to what we'll allow on this show. Okay, because when I thought of like something that I could definitely say I won, um, during a dark period in my life <laughs> when I was... Um, had just moved out of New York and was about to move to London. I had to stay with my father, um, who had just moved to Longford, and my sister was living there at the same time. And um, and we got really into competitive um, agricultural fair um, competition. So <laughs> my, my father had entered a, a class that really did exist in the Cavan Fair called Best Bread Baked by a Man. And he had won <laughs> Best Bread Baked by a Man. And that was the beginning of the fervour to compete in agricultural fairs. And uh, my sister and I both entered the um, Best Decorated Cupcakes class. Oh, wow. And I started by really getting into it because I thought they would taste the cupcakes. So I started, I bought a Martha Stewart book and I started making like, you know, zucchini and poppy seed cupcakes and very fancy cupcakes. And then when my sister said, no, they don't taste the cupcakes, they just look at them. I put everything <laughs> into the decoration and uh, my sister who made impeccable hand sculpted woodland creatures she's an artist these were phenomenal i managed to beat her because i took the train from longford to dublin and went to stock and bought fancy piping accessories and watched a lot of youtube videos about how to do like shells those sort of really old style because i thought that the the elderly female judges of the longer longford agricultural fair would be that would be more their taste and i triumphed and oh, so this is brilliant. This is a lasting shameful moment of terrible, desperate sibling <laughs> rivalry because I'm going to say something. I should not have won. My sister should have won. Hers Which just makes it all the sweeter. I just yeah. knew my audience. But but it was that was probably the most competitive I've ever been in a sporting context. No, that is good. That is very good. I have to say, you know, you're the last person to get a shot at this year's title. There's a lot going on here. Murph, could you please rank this sporting life of Jennifer Walsh? <laughs> you don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. OK, 
Okay, Jennifer, here it comes. For the last time this season, it falls to me to assess your all-time sporting highlight. Pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements, and then present you with a score out of 100 to discover if you've timed your run to perfection and you will become <laughs> our top non-sports person sports person for 2022. There's a reason why every bassoonist in the land quakes at the mere mention of your name. They may be known as the Jokers in every orchestra, but no bassoonist dare talk smack when renowned judoka Jennifer Walsh is on the scene. <laughs> you believe that composing music is a collaborative experience. Me and Owen seem to reckon it's down to the genius of one person. So maybe the sports personality that you most remind me of is Roy Keane, a singularly <laughs> gifted footballer who nevertheless promoted the team above all else. Not for Roy Keane, the lavishly hand-sculpted cupcakes of your Lionel Messi's or your Kylian Mbappe's. Just give me a straight up and down, proper icing, traditional cupcake, and be done with it. Definitely points at it for your interest in Angela Lansbury workout videos. Points, however, deducted for your bizarre love for Midland agricultural affairs. We can't pretend that that's normal behaviour, I'm sorry. So, having weighed it all up, taking into account the D-Mob happy last day of school vibe of today, I'm pleased to be able to give you 77 points, good enough for a top five finish. Jennifer Walsh, this has been your sporting life. Top five finish? More than I could have ever dreamed of. (laughs) Jennifer Walsh, thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm glad to finish in the top five. (laughs) Woohoo! simply had to be Get Back by the Beatles as our final tune after the chat we had today about Paul McCartney plucking that one out of his head in about two minutes flat. All the music you've heard on the show throughout the series, by the way, can be found on Spotify on our second Captain Saturday, This Sporting Life playlist. You can find the link on our Twitter and Instagram accounts right now. We'll also post a link at secondcaptains.com. Every song ever played on the sixth series of the show will be there. I said at the top we were going out in style and that's Exactly how it went down with the amazing Jennifer Walsh, an experimental classical musician with a penchant for Angela Lansbury workout videos <laughs> and a brown belt in judo. That's the kind of guests we're bringing you on this show on a weekly basis. Has anybody ever reacted with such excitement to a top five finish? I was kind of wondering, what would she have done if you'd given her a top three? Mm. I mean, is she entirely aware that there were only eight guests this season? Who knows? <laughs> I'm <not quite> sure. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. if she thinks, you know, it's top five out of you know, 52 guests or something, then who am I to to rob her of that moment, that golden moment? Thanks again to Jennifer for being the final guest of the series. A fine effort by her, but not enough to take the title. Murph, the time has come. What are the final standings in the race to become? 2022, second captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. 
Okay, so the final leaderboard is in eighth place, Irish novelist and literary living legend Anne Enright. In seventh place, scion of Irish film dynasty Breen Gleeson. In sixth place, William Finnegan, Irish American journalist and surfing non pari. In joint fourth, today's guest, Jennifer Walsh and trade unionist Mick Lynch. It gets better. Not a, that's just top five, joint fourth, yeah, amazing. The top three then. In third place on 83 points, screenwriter and author Nick Hornby. In second place on 85 points, Hollywood superstar Fiona Shaw. And in first place with 86 points, author Kit Deval, the second ah. captain's non-sports person, sports person for 2022. Congratulations, Kit. We hope the year-long programme of events we've lined up for you as our champion is to your life. <laughs> and so long, 2021 champ, Malcolm Gladwell, we hardly knew. <laughs> Gladwell's got to hand over that trophy and I'm sure he will do it with... Good grace, the good grace we've come to expect of the man. Well done to Kitaval. That brings us to the end of this series of Second Captain Saturday. It's been an absolute pleasure being with you for the past couple of months. A massive thanks for listening to the show and for all the great emails and tweets we've had over the course of the series. I think there's a proper Second Captain's listening community that comes out every Saturday afternoon on Radio 1 and drops us a line, particularly on Twitter. We've noticed a trend, in fact. We appear to work extremely well as an accompaniment to you guys doing mind-numbing Saturday jobs that you really don't want to be doing. For example, mm. Annie West listens while she's working in her shed out the back. Moira Logue listened last week while she was clearing out what she called her crap drawer. <laughs> I don't really know what that is or if that's a compliment, uh, but nevertheless. Has one on. Come on. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back to help you with any crap drawers you need cleaning with a Christmas special on RT Radio 1. In the meantime, listen to us daily at secondcaptains.com for independent member-led broadcasting on sport and beyond. Thanks to Killian Down for producing the show. The series producer for Second Captains is Mark Horgan. Big thanks to Johnny Lanagan and Elizabeth Larrabee in RT for all their help over the last eight weeks. Stick around for Doc on One coming right up. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, old. Thanks again. We'll see you soon. Take care. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude.